a riddle wrapped in a mystery, inside an enigma, tied off with a who really cares? It's Kiddo's Nasty Notes. <laughs> Hello. I'm Sir Dr. Alex Sarand. Due to a gentleman's agreement and strict contract with his lawyers, I'm obliged to read Gibbo's nasty notes on this dreadful podcast. I'm a retired professor of Western civilization, marooned here on this godforsaken Pacific island. The lawyers do permit me to say that I have had a difficult history with Gibbo, and that I really do read these notes reluctantly. That's right, listeners. Each week, my conservative old Western Civ professor meets me at a studio to read aloud whatever I write for him. He also has a right of reply to defend himself. My name is Tarquin Gibbs, and my advice is don't make bets or gentlemen's agreements. Oh, and our no-nonsense Jane helps with the music and technical side of things. Enjoy. I must start this week's show with a quotation from the greatest writer in the canon of Western civilization, Shakespeare, and it is this. How ill white hairs become a fool and jester. Gibber would do well to reflect upon this. How terribly grey hair becomes a comedian. Old people shouldn't try to be funny because they, categorically, cannot be. Shakespeare himself stopped writing many years before his death, at the age of 52. Such is the matter of hair. But what of being a clown? Our nimble-shouldered, swinging singer has a reply for this too. And he asks us to picture this scene. A father attends his daughter's first concert as a stand-up comedian, and he worries, I hope she's not a clown. Gibbo sniggers at this poor father's worry. He thinks it's laughable that someone would worry that a comedian would clown about. Oh, contraire! There has always been a crucial difference between a clown and a comedian. Jane, will you... Jane, Jane, will you... Will you patch me through, please? Thanks, Sir Alec. My reply to Shakespeare is how ill any hair becomes a jester. She's better bald and mournful for it. I know you'll think that's backward and underclass of me, but bay, I'm so analogue, I don't even know what analogue means. It's just all very warm over here on the sofa. A paradise in a storm. I find your talk indecipherable as anything with boasting. The athletic self-satisfaction of the indolent freeloader. Emancipated infant, enfant horrible, bubus, islanders, count jaculate, fool. Adding to your buffoonery, last week you told us you're a feminist, as if any properly raised man would be willing to admit to that title. We didn't have a woman in the Department of Western Civilization until the very attractive and highly libertine liberal Ms. Clutterbuck joined us from Oxford. Gibbo uses the terms devoted and mothery of himself. Oh, 
I've always seen motherhood to be cracked by ambivalence. Women eat their young and mourn over the excrement. My advice, although I'm averse to giving any, is neither a philanderer nor a misogynist bee. You're rightfully condemned for hating women, but should you be condemned for loving them? Oh, I am an orphan of empire. I have not yet pinpointed Gabalski's age, but Bid always felt him to be a centenarian lurking in a sixteen-year-old's body. Mm. An out-of-timer, a fresh relic, seduced by every bright, dumb idea, a believer of everything and anything. He believes I'm critical of him only because he never invited me to the orgies. The orgies! Ugh. Wisdom note. Shock jocks only reveal what shocks them. What is this? What is this next in the notes? No, not that word. I, I can't see that word in this context. Poem? No, no. Gibber is going to read a poem. I crush the members of bulls. I soak my boss in milk. Coca-Cola effervesces and nibbles my boss. Dark swims my boss in coffee, cardamom tinted, the hot springs of Takanu, yes, the soft waters of Kurogo, let the silt wring the hood, squeeze milk from fingers, juice sauce, incise the pomegranate, corpuscles running down my chin and hairy chest, crushing pomegranate and artichoke, choking the granite crush. Good God, man! You're raving like an impulsive lunatic. When I drink pomegranate juice, I use a straw. Squish cheese cream from my fist. When I eat ravioli, I use a knife and fork, sir. It's the western civilized way. Roll my flesh translucent in the grass. Watch the skin bag crawl like an octopus in the sun where the photons enliven the light seeds. I wear a good hat and sunscreen when I'm out in the sun and, uh, prefer a climate suited to anoraks. Stomach burnished, bronze-winged, soiled celestial, beating blood, beating it. With medications for blood pressure disorders now. Pumping lemon loin, lemon loin. Alliteration is where I draw the line. Thus far and no farther. Hello listeners, Gibbo here. Root Word Hotspot is part of the show I keep to myself. Sometimes I sit in with Sir Alec and Jane while they record my notes, and other times I punch in, punch out in the editing room if I want to comment on something silly Sir Alec has said. But I've grown attached to Root Word Hotspot, so here we go. First word of the day. Monitor. Minotaur. We hear the word monitor everywhere. Computer monitor. Music monitors. The hallway monitor. All of these derive from the Greek bull man and his ability to see, watch, patrol and protect. A little like me, Cephalic. 
I am your mentor, monitor, bull. Second root of the day. Widow, window. The spouse who has lost his, her spouse is a widow. And this word's root means empty. Historically, windows were a place through which to let in fresh air, and they were empty. Thus the connection of widow and window. Gibbo's Anthropological Notes, as read by Sir Dr. Alec Sarand. My School of Western Civilization biannually, that is, to be clear, once every two years, held the Conference of Intercivilizational Dialogue, which always delivered some new startling truth about how other cultures do things. Did you, do you know that the Buddhists always arrange their toilet tissue so that it unrolls from the bottom? After learning this, I was certain to use the lavatory of Every Buddhist household I visited, and without exception, the toilet tissue always unfurls from the bottom, and never cascades from the top like a waterfall. You may ask, why do Buddhists handle their toilet roll like this? The answer concerns the cardinal directions, north, south, etc. A renowned Chinese Buddhist monk wanted his students to always remember that Buddhism travelled south to north, from below the Indus, through the Himalayas, northbourne to China, and into Chinwangdao. When you take your anal tissue in a Buddhist household, you will always draw it upward from below, just as India was understood to be below and south of the Middle Kingdom. Fasciating in... Intro-mission. 15 seconds scheduled intro-mission. Intro-mission. 15 seconds scheduled intro-mission. Intro-mission. 15 seconds scheduled intro-mission. 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 Intromission. Oh, one of our. No. One of our listeners. Now I have quite a few who direct me <laughs> to a website, an online resource that is terribly delicious uh, information. Um, the website is titled the Urban Dictionary. <laughs> what a delightful surprise it has proven to be on the topic of my spiritual nemesis. With full pleasure, I have read the entries for Gibbo. <laughs> and do you know, or how could you? How perfectly accurate are the definitions of that nasty man? (laughs) 
I'm going to read them for you. Okay. Here we go. <laughs> Gibbo. Fogey tells us Gibbo is a lesbian from the south of England. Come on, girls. I'm off out to pull a Gibbo. <laughs> a lesbian from south England. <laughs> Mr. Gibson from Australia gives us this. Gibbo is true blue fair dinkum Aussie to an uneducated Australian usually resides in the western suburbs is unemployed or works as a labourer a Westie Bergen Yobbo <laughs> but someone using the code name wine and cheese offers the most accurate description a gibbo is an overly camp man who has all the traits of a gay man but sleeps with women, lives on a diet of subway salads and hummus, and never drinks on a night out unless there is a ready supply of Bacardi breezes, reefs or WKDs behind the bar, in which case these will only be drunk, stropedo style. Look at that guy over there in his Mini Cooper rocking the Deep V t-shirt. What a gibbo. <laughs> oh, yes, yes, yeah. More, more, more. A gibbo is an ape-like creature that can be trained to perform simple tricks and chess moves. However, gibbos are prone to urinating on themselves at the first hint of the endgame. Scientific name, Gibbos bendus, species of the Anus stigus family. <laughs> oh, God, good things come to those who wait. Oh, you enjoyed that, you terrible old lech, didn't you? For someone claiming an Oxbridge pedigree like a spaniel across a Labrador, you've got a crude sense of humour, giggling like a schoolboy over the very mention of the word lesbian. You do really deserve to be punished on this show, just the way you are, by me, a male feminist geisha, and proud of it. I think that for all your mean laughing, I'm going to reward you with what we promised the listener in the previous episode. The first instalment of the taxidermy book, Deranging Skins. This is the first reading, presented by me, himself. I recently read Zadie Smith quoting someone else, quoting someone else, who said something like, we repeat our worst experiences to gain control over them, but we repeat an element of them at a sideward slant. Maybe my descriptions of small taxidermied possums are done to control the viscera found in the coroner's report for my deceased mother. Perhaps. This is also a good time to say that I will, briefly, review books. I love reading Zadie Smith when I'm doing yoga because she strengthens my commitment to multiculturalism. Doesn't Wilsdon Green and Smith's White Teeth sound like a paradise on earth? People from all over the world living together as one big family. Anyway, I was rereading Zadie's essays and she compliments Edward St. Auburn on his use of simile. I was made to read St. Auburn when I had the bad luck of attending Sir Dr. Phalax Saran's Western Civilization course. Sir Alec loved St. Auburn because he was so rah-rah English but I found him impossible to swallow, and that's saying something. Anyways, as the nasty New Yorkers say, in a coming and clearly titled episode, I will review Edward St. Auburn and Will Self's vivisection of him in the first instalment of Will Self's third-person autobiography titled, wait for it, Self. But now it's time for my taxidermied bandicoots.
They also used the new tools to position the Australian native bodies in ways that captured the very moment of death's first impact, the moment of a collision, for instance. They stretched the jaw of a pretty-faced wallaby that had been hit by a car into a position that it would never have assumed while alive or dead. But its jaw was broken, so they knew that at impact the bone had been ripped off a great way from its skull, stretched and snapped from its hinges. This meant that to be true to the moment of dying, they had to manipulate the body into a shape it would not have taken in life. It was true to the shape it took at the moment when it was neither dead nor alive, when it had moved into that gap between life and death. They called it their little Tibetan Buddhist pretty-faced wallaby. It took hours to lock that jaw into position. They had to keep the mouth wide open while they drilled holes and attached braces to push it out to that extreme and precise angle. While some visitors to the workshop argued that the pretty face wallaby didn't look anything like it would have when it was alive or dead, the housemates could confidently say that it looked very much like it did at the moment when it was both or neither. It was beautiful. After cleaning the pretty face's fur and making it neat with combs, it looked so wallaby-like and healthy, with its perfectly realistic teeth and perky ears, except for its highly disturbed mandible. They worked on a ring-tailed possum whose hip had been broken. When finished, it looked like an articulated city bus turning a corner. They failed to preserve the dying moments of a pebble-mound mouse in a trap, a double-eyed fig parrot hit by a motorbike, and of a red-legged paddy melon being eaten by a fox. Tilda worked well with the dental hooks, and the others stood over her while she scratched at her spotted coral's teeth, ridding it of its stained ridges. She thought then that the hooks would be good for pulling out the edges of a wound so she could clean it without damaging the skin. After that, she used a burr to cut deeper into the teeth, a fine dust puffed through the air and into her nostrils. Then she put in a silver filling and filed it back. You know, dentistry is not all that difficult, she said. They tried out different brushes from the thick and rough to the extremely fine. The teeth came out very clean. Not really white, but aglow. We'll try the veneers later, said Tilda. I'd like to see its teeth glisten like the celebrity it is. Or like Pablo's, for that matter. Let's see you use that drill again on its knee, he said. I want to see if it's easy to wire the shin bone into the thigh so it sits forward. While they drilled, wired and burnished, Al carefully painted images onto the sarcophagi, pictures of possum heaven, to balance the images of kookaburra purgatory. 
With great care, she painted a variety of foodstuffs, native tropical apples, figs, sunflower seeds. She said she truly believed that the creatures would be hungry in the afterworld, and pictures of food were not representations at all, but real food. She looked up books on the natural diet of each animal and added ingredients she thought they would like. Painted pictures of organic fruits and bush tucker because she believed only pure and non-preserved foods could cleanse the soul and ready it for scaling the ladders she drew spiralling across the black space of the spherical tombs pathways to the afterlife. She was convinced these pictures provided sustenance. Sometimes she drew small pints of stout for them. Inscriptions were engraved, mostly in English, sometimes in hieroglyphics. Ascend on the raven and the dove. Ascend because you are the highest and the lowest. Brother of the moon, sister of the stars, enter the constellations. The raven and the dove mirror each other's flight. When you stand, you are spirit. When you sit, you are body. No enemies will block your path. Come forth to the great possum that begat you. She drew animals to be a possum's soul guide. Dingoes, crocodiles, lyrebirds, cassowaries, wedge-tailed eagles and giant wombats. Large, beautiful and dangerous figures of Anubis and Kadaicha looked out imperiously at her as she coloured them. There were figures of archers, shot-putters, and of a truck Al imagined had run over the possum. She drew exquisite images of organs, red hearts pulsing with blue blood, plump and lustrous livers, unblemished and powerful kidneys, all necessary for the reassembly job that would take place on the other side. Oh, how Al the artist sometimes prayed in the dark that she could be so reassembled. Poor Al's hot tears and cold skin. If only she could be devoured and be reborn of the big Al in the sky that begat her. But there was always the work, and in those images she bequeathed gifts to her creatures and in doing so bequeathed a more bountiful world to herself. It was through sustaining them that they sustained her. The bar is low but I'm still Jumping. Our home is patreon.com slash gibbo's nasty notes. Motherhood joke borrowed from Peter Bainham, who wrote the excellent animation I Am Not an Animal. 